Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the God of creation, that you created all things, that you sustain all things, and in you, all things hold together. And Father, I thank you that as we come to this time to hear from you through your word, Father, we thank you for preserving your word from the time you spoke to your servant Habakkuk thousands of years ago to where we can read it this morning in Canfield in the year 2018. Father, would you use your word to transform us more into the likeness of Jesus, and as a result, would our lives be different? We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Houston, we have a problem. Five words that were spoken nearly 50 years ago that might go down as one of the most iconic national current event um, events that happened in our nation's history. It was April 13th, 1970. Some of you lived through this. Some of you, like I, were not even born yet. But Apollo 13 was loaded with these three guys that are shown here on the screen, and they were headed for the moon when they faced a mechanical problem. However, their mechanical problem was different than our mechanical problem when we were driving down the road on Route 11 or maybe 76 or 80 towards Columbus, right? When we have a mechanical problem and we pull off the side of the road and we try to figure out what to do, maybe call a mechanic or call AAA and hope someone comes and rescues us. These people were about 200,000 miles from Earth when there was an explosion that happened in their spacecraft. And they did what only common sense would do. They called for help. Actually, the words were different than Houston, we have a problem. They were slightly different. On that day, April 13th, one of these astronauts shown up here on the screen called in, and his first word was, okay. He said, okay, Houston, we've had a problem. The mission control people in Houston, they responded, this is Houston, say again, please. And then a second anxiously answered, uh, Houston, we've had a problem. They realized that an explosion had taken, place on, has taken place on this spacecraft and a plan must be quickly made and executed, not so they could get to the moon, but so that they could survive. And this morning, as we shift our focus here to the second half of Habakkuk chapter 1 and the beginning of Habakkuk chapter 2, last week, Pastor Nick started this sermon series that we're titling, Unwanted Answers. And the people in Habakkuk's day, God's people that Habakkuk was part of, they had a problem that was even bigger than the problem that these astronauts faced. They had a problem of sin, of iniquity, that was drenching God's people, God's covenant people whom he loved and he even gave his own name to. These people were separated from God. And last week, as Pastor Nick started this sermon series, he explained that when this started and Habakkuk said, we have a problem, there is sin and iniquity in our camp, it was as if Habakkuk the prophet was asking God, what are you going to do? And God answered, but as our sermon series is titled, it was an unwanted answer. God said, God told Habakkuk that it would be something that he wouldn't even believe. That God would take this nation who in chapter 1 verse 6, 
God refers to as a bitter and hasty nation, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, these were the enemies of God's people. And God was going to use this enemy to judge, to rule, and to cleanse his people. And this was an unwanted answer for Habakkuk. But now today as we shift to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, it's as if Habakkuk moved past the question of God, what are you going to do? And now he asks God, God, why are you going to do this? If you are God, why would you take our enemy nation and have them rule and judge over us? So I invite you to open up your Bibles to the minor prophet of Habakkuk. It's on page 785 in your pew Bible. Or if you're unfamiliar with uh, the minor prophets, as a lot of us are, I like to tell my students in our youth ministry, the table of contents is your friend. We do not need to be ashamed of using the table of contents. And this is a minor prophet, not because it's not minor in importance, because it, but it's minor by size. And Habakkuk starts out here um, in chapter 1, verse 12. But I want to make one contextual observation that will help us understand these verses. You'll notice if you look down at verses 15 to 17, the word he or his is listed 13 times in the last three verses of chapter 1. So when we read down through here, the he or the his that we get to in verses 15 to 17, that is referring to the Chaldeans, to this enemy nation that God is using to rule and to judge and to cleanse his people. So let's hear from the word of the Lord together. Habakkuk's second complaint, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post, and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. 
He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. So Habakkuk starts the second half of chapter 1 asking God three different questions. And it's important to note, before we dive in here and look at these three different types of questions that Habakkuk was asking, these are not questions where he was necessarily looking for open-ended answers. These questions were asked as accusations. Now, we can all think of examples in our own life where someone asks us a question, but really they were accusing us of something. I think we all probably were in a car at some point, whether you were the driver or whether you were the passenger or whether you were the dreaded backseat driver giving advice, where maybe the car or the vehicle was going a little faster than everyone felt comfortable on the winding road. And someone asked, why are you driving so fast? Right? What the people in the car were probably not looking for was an explanation that the reason my foot is hitting the pedal at the angle it is is because I want to go this amount of mile per hour rather than that. No, they were making an accusation. You're going too fast. Please slow down. Or maybe they didn't even use the word please, right? Because sometimes when questions are asked, they're not just for open-ended answers. They're, they're looked at as accusations. And we see here, starting in verse 12, Habakkuk asks God several things at the same time as he's accusing him. The very first set of questions we see here is he's asking God or accusing him based on his characteristics or based on his character. Starting in verse 12, he lists three different characteristics of God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? See, Habakkuk had good theology. He knew that God was from everlasting, that he didn't have a beginning and he's never going to have an end. Habakkuk knew that he worshipped God, and because he worshipped God, he believed that God was above all things. He even admitted the fact that God was holy. He was separate. He was set apart. And he was wondering, if these were the characteristics or the character of God, then God, why are you raising up our enemy nation, the people we despise? Why are you choosing to use them in order to cleanse us? Now, it's important to note here, if we go right down at the second half of that verse, Habakkuk, thankfully, it appears he had a very realistic view of what was happening. I think sometimes when we as humans go through difficult times in life, some of us, based on our personalities, are either pessimists and we look at a situation and we paint it a lot worse than it actually is, or some of you, maybe very few of you in this room right now, are eternal optimists. And when you go through a difficult situation, right, you paint it better than it actually is. But Habakkuk knew what was happening here. If you look at the language here in verse 12, the second half of verse 12, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them, speaking of his enemy, as a judgment. And you, O rock, you have established them for reproof. He was wondering how, God, if your character is this way, then why are you responding the way that you are? But he continues questioning the character of God, and he starts to shift, and now he questions the actions of God. If we look down uh, at verse 13, he, he continues with the characteristic of God. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, right? He's saying, God, this is a characteristic of you. Your eyes are pure. You can't look at evil. You can't look at wrong, God. That's who you are. 
then he accuses God based on his actions. He says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I, I enjoy how the ESV translates the word here, and we see the word idle, right? We know that the word idle means that, right, you're not making forward motion, but you're not going backward. It's kind of like you're stuck in idle, He's accusing God and saying, God, if you're the one who sent our enemy to cleanse us, these people who are even more evil than us, why, why is it as if you're idle and you're just sitting back? Why, if you're a speaking God, right? Habakkuk knew that, he was, that God could respond because he already did earlier in the chapter. Why, why, God, why are you remaining silent when this evil nation is rising up against us? And he's questioning and he's accusing God, not only based off his character, but here we see based off of his actions. And then he continues with one last question that comes at the very end of the chapter. But in order to build up to that question, it's as if he paints a picture where this, like we explained earlier, where this enemy nation were people and everyone else on the earth are fish. Now, I don't know if you enjoy going fishing. I don't know if you've ever caught a fish, if you caught a small fish or a big fish. Obviously, going fishing looked different back in the day of Habakkuk than it does right now. But the principle is still the same, right? When you go fishing, you are a person, and unless you're like some, you know, a hardcore fisherman who catches like these big, like these big fish, right? You catch a fish, and you have dominion over that fish. No matter how big it is, right, you can hold it up. I saw a picture on Facebook, I think it was this morning or yesterday, where I was going down through my Facebook news feed. Someone caught a fish and they wanted to show it off on Facebook, right? Because when we catch a fish, it's easy to see here, the human has dominion over the fish. And Habakkuk is crying out to God and he's saying, why are you raising this nation up to catch us like we're fish? I mean, look at the intentional language used in verses 14 and 15. It says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, speaking of the enemy, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. It paints a picture for us that not only is the enemy overtaking God's people, but they're rejoicing over it. They're glad because of it. It's like the rival sports team that it's not bad enough that they beat you, but they're celebrating and mocking you. And it gets even worse than this. In verse 16, it says, not only are they rejoicing in the fact that they overtake people, but it says in verse 16 that therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So this picture Habakkuk is painting is that these people are not only overtaking them, they're not only being joyful and celebratory in overtaking them, but they're worshiping the means in which they are doing it. And even worse than that, not only are they worshiping the means in which they're doing that, but they're getting rich off of it. They're living in luxury. And Habakkuk says to God in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? 
The third question or accusation Habakkuk puts before God is he questions the timing of God. Now, it's, it's fun to look at how the Bible and how the Bible is kind of put together here. And we notice at the beginning of this section, the very first thing Habakkuk brought before God was the characteristic that God was from everlasting. And then the very last thing in chapter 1, he's questioning whether God is going to do this forever. And I don't know about you, but patience does not come naturally to people. That's a, that's a reason it's a fruit of the Spirit, because we can become more patient as we abide in Jesus. And Habakkuk is asking, Habakkuk is asking God, why are you raising up this evil nation to rule us? And are you going to let this go on forever? And then he takes his stand. He says in the beginning of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, as we think about Habakkuk and how it's a minor prophet, I think it's important for us to take a moment just to um, pull out of the Old Testament and realize the idea here in the beginning of chapter 2 where Habakkuk kind of pulled back and he waited for God to answer. This is not very unusual in the Old Testament. We think of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. The verse is going to come up here on the screen. It says, and he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in the pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Right? Elijah was waiting to experience God, and he went out on a mount, and he waited. Another example in the Old Testament, a, a character in the Old Testament a lot of us are familiar with, Moses, towards the end of the book of Exodus... In Exodus 33, verse 21, it says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Right? Moses goes to this place, and he's waiting. Or, I mean, a third example in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories, Jonah. Many of us are familiar with Jonah, right? Jonah goes the opposite way. God redirects him in a similar way to what's happening here. God saves the city of Nineveh. All of Nineveh repents. And what does Jonah do in the beginning of chapter 4? It says in verse 5, he went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. It's as if he's going out and he's, he's waiting. He's saying, I already know God's saved, but maybe God's going to change his mind. What is God going to do? And Habakkuk, as an Old Testament prophet, is really no different than them. It's as if he's kind of sitting there waiting to see what God will do next. In the middle of verse 2, it says he's going to look out to see what he will say to me. And the very next words direct us to what God says. And the Lord answered me. He said, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. 
it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. See, what Habakkuk was doing at this time was similar to what I do a lot of times when I go through difficult times. He was spending so much time analyzing the situation that he was in. He was spending so much time running different scenarios through his mind. Why is God doing this or what is God doing now? But God directs him to stop analyzing the situation that he was in and to start by living by faith. We see here that God's people are called to trust God and live by faith even when life does not make sense. God's people are called to trust him and live by faith even when life doesn't make sense. See, this was a stunning answer to Habakkuk's three questions because it didn't change the fact that he still lived in a very uncertain situation. It didn't even change the fact that the situation that Habakkuk was in was scary. Think of God's people who are sinful and the way that God chooses to cleanse them is to take their enemy. It didn't change the fact. God did, wasn't like, I'm going to change my mind and we're going to see this next week even more. But what God was calling Habakkuk to do was in the midst of the messiness of life, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the fear, to not turn his back and walk away from God, but to take his eyes off of his situation and to follow him by faith. And this wasn't only God's plan for Habakkuk, but this is God's plan for his people through all of the ages. This is God's plan for his people today. I mean, think with me for a moment about Christians even today on the other side of the world in the nation of Nepal. I was reading, I was reading online earlier this week how a, a, um, a law was recently passed in Nepal called an anti-conversion law. So anyone who tried to convert someone away from Hinduism would basically be threatened for their life. And I wonder what a, a Christian in Nepal right now, a young man or a young woman or anyone who is faithfully trying to follow God in the messiness of life, and it appears God isn't changing these, these laws, they're actually getting worse, what are they called to do? To run the other way? To pack up and leave? No, they're called to trust God and live by faith, even in the midst of the messiness of life, even when life doesn't make sense. Let's, let's leave Nepal and let's come back right here close to home. Let's think of the person right here in Canfield. Let's think of you and I. The person who shares the gospel with a neighbor, who talks for hours about life and family and politics and everything in between, but also shares the gospel with their friend, shares the good news that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to save sinners, the good news that we no longer need to be fearful of God in the sense that we don't have to work in order to please God, but God sent Jesus Christ into the world in order to pay the penalty of our sin. And this person shares the gospel over and over again, yet the person's heart continues to, to seem hard and unaffected. Have you ever found yourself there? I have. And what are we called to do? 
Sometimes I analyze myself. Well, did I say something wrong? Did I pray enough? Like, like trying to figure it out. And we do need to think about these things. But no, in, in the midst of life, when we don't understand it, we're, we're called to trust God and live by faith. Or think about your family. Maybe your family here today or another family that's trying their best to follow the commands of God by his grace and his strength to live with integrity in the world that we live in. Yet experiencing that maybe the family down the road that you know does not file their taxes in an integrity way seems to be prospering, seems to be getting more and more successful in life. What are we called to do? I have this example with students in our student ministry all the time. I, I like to ask them, what percentage of your school do you think cheats on exams? And let me tell you what, the percentages when I've asked before seems to be very high. And, I and we talk about what the word says and we're called to live with integrity. But it's a difficult situation when you study for an exam and you spend hours studying and you take the test and let's say you get a B, which is a good grade, but let's say you get a B. And the person sitting three seats down got the exam from the person the period before and cheats and gets the A. And their class rank goes up and yours goes down. What are we called to do? We're not called to change our, our value of integrity. No, we're called to trust God and live by faith. And that's hard because life is messy. Now, we could take many more much more time looking at different examples. I know you can think of examples in your own life where it appears that God's plan does not make sense. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a relational strain that does not seem to be fixed. Maybe it's just something you're going through in life that you were hoping would end a long time ago. And you were hoping that God was going to act differently than he does. What are we supposed to do? It's been an interesting week for me. I, I was thinking about preaching this passage for many weeks, but this week as I was putting this sermon together, I sat on my couch one evening and I told my wife, Jenna, wow, I need to apply this sermon to my life before I get up there to preach on Sunday because I was given a curveball this week by God when I thought I knew what God's plans were for something and it appears they're very different. I, I realized this is us. This is not only Habakkuk. This is not only the church throughout history. This is us today. We are called to live by faith and trust God. Now, what does it mean to live by faith? Faith is a church word, a word we usually use in church, but we don't use very often outside of church. What does it mean to live by faith? Well, thankfully, there's a few examples right here in the, second, in the second half of the scripture we looked at. The very first principle we see here on what it means to live by faith is that we live opposite how the Chaldeans were living. Look at the beginning of verse 1. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. This is at verse 4, I mean. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then in verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 5, Speaking of the Chaldeans, it, it talks about them as arrogant. It talks to them about being greedy, about never having enough. It says he gathers for himself all nations and collects for himself all people. If we are going to be a people who live by faith, 
we must be marked by humility. For humility is a prerequisite for living by faith. Because the whole point of living by faith is we must admit that God's plan is better than mine. If we try to live by faith and don't trust that God's plan is better than ours, then we're truly not living by faith. But what God calls us to do is to live not in a prideful way as the Chaldeans were doing, but to humbly follow him by faith. The second principle we see here in verse 3 is that if we're going to live by faith, we need to be people who trust that God's timing is perfect. Look with how um, the middle of this verse, it says, if it seems slow, wait for it. God didn't say if it is slow. It says if it seems slow. God's actions are always on time. We know this. Prayer requests that we have prayed, and we're hoping God answers today, but he answers tomorrow. Was God late? No, it might have seemed slow to us, but but God said, Habakkuk, wait for it. It will surely come. And the third principle we see here of living by faith is not only that we must be marked by humility, not only that we trust that God's timing is perfect, but if we are going to live by faith, we must trust that God's word is sure. For what God says, God will do. We serve a good God. We can be confident that what God says he will do by what it says within our Bible, what it says within the word of God. But we can also be confident that God's word is sure when we share testimony to each other of how God has worked in our lives. That's why we spend time together as the church on Sunday mornings. That's why we spend time together as the church on Wednesday evenings or in other gatherings. Because we're a people who are sharing how God has been working in our lives. Not only so it can encourage other people, but so when we get to the point in our lives and we don't feel like we see God working, we can be reminded that God is not slow, God is not hidden. God's word is sure. We serve a God who is good, who calls us to live by faith. And as we think about this topic of living by faith, and as we think about this verse here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, this is a verse that's not, not only found in the Old Testament, but this is a verse that is found in the New Testament, and that God has, God has used this verse throughout church history. And especially this morning, as in a few moments, we're going to come together as a church and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to acknowledge his death until he comes again. May I suggest to us that it's actually a good thing that God's plans are different than our plans. It's actually a good thing that as it says in the New Testament, that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that God's plans were not to leave us dead forever, but to make us alive in Christ Jesus. We serve a good God 
whose plans are better than ours. And we're reminded how Paul uses, Paul quotes this verse about the righteous living by faith in Romans 1, 17. Paul says to the church in Rome, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this was not only the case for the Christians back in the day of Paul, this was not only the case for the people of God back in the time of Habakkuk, but this is for us today. That we are a people who live by faith, acknowledging, like Paul wrote, that our righteousness comes not from the good things we have done. Our righteousness comes not from attempting to please God, but our, the righteousness of our God is being revealed from faith, ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ. And as we come together here in a few moments, I challenge us to take a moment and think about the beauty of the fact that God's plans are better than ours, revealed ultimately in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Church, we are called to be a people who trust God and live by faith, even when life does not make sense. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for preserving your word for us. And Father, as I prayed earlier this morning, would you use your word to change us? Father, would you give us the courage? Would you give the people seated here this morning who need courage to trust that your timing is perfect, would you give them the courage to trust that? Would you give us the boldness to believe that your word truly is sure and what you say will happen? And Father, help us to believe the gift that in the midst of the messiness of life, that you truly are in control of all things. Father, we love you and we thank you for being our God. And we thank you that your plans are better than ours, demonstrated by sending Jesus to save us from our sins. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.